Shapers on Jazz FM. Listen in color. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Love for sale. Appetizing young love for sale. What a wonderfully upbeat way to start the programme this morning. Good morning, I'm Elliot Moss. This is Jazz Shapers here on Jazz FM on a bright and breezy Saturday morning. Jazz Shapers, the place where you can hear the very best of the people shaping the world of jazz, soul and blues, alongside their equivalents in the world of business, a business shaper. My business shaper today, I'm very pleased to tell you, is Peter Osborne. He is the founder and managing director of Osborne Publishing. And if you have children, you will know him or rather his work and his wonderful work extremely well. I certainly do. You'll be hearing lots from Peter um, very, very shortly. In addition to hearing from Peter, you'll be hearing from our programme partners at Mishkondorea. Some words of advice for your business. And on top of all of that, of course, a sumptuous mix of music from the shapers of jazz, blues and soul, including Madeline Peru, Louis Armstrong, new music from Omar Avital, and this from Joyce Moreno. O meu peão ele só roda com a ponteira, com a ponteirinha rasteirinha pelo chão. O meu peão ele só roda com a ponteira, com a ponteirinha rasteirinha pelo chão. Dança na mão, dança na mão, dança na mão. Meu peão dança na mão, dança na mão, dança na mão. I'm positively tapping my toes. Two great tracks already here on Jazz Shapers. That was Mio Piao. I'm sure I've said that incorrectly. My Spanish is better than my Portuguese. From Joyce Moreno, a Brazilian. Great. Well, I've got a publishing great with me today, Peter Osborne. I'm making sure I say it properly so we don't get any persecuted feelings over there from Peter. Peter is the founder, as I mentioned earlier, and managing director of Osborne Publishing. And a fine institution it is too. Only 41 years old, though, Peter. Well, I'm sorry about that. We'll keep going for a bit longer we if need you want. To, we need to make sure you're established properly. Now, uh, for those of um, for those of the people listening that don't know, just give me a little flavour of what Osborne Publishing is all about. Well, Osborne Publishing is a fairly substantial children's publishing company that I started, as you correctly say, 41 years ago, which has grown and grown, which publishes um, a lot of sticker books, a series you probably know called That's Not My and all sorts of other books, about 400 books a year. And we've grown and grown, and we are now, uh, I suppose, one of the leading children's book publishers in this country. But we also publish in six foreign languages, which is remarkable. French, Spanish, Italian. We're just about to start, I think, tomorrow. Uh, I was born Korea, and I love languages, so we're very export crazy, really. Now, building a business over four decades is takes some doing. Right at the centre of it is creating stories and books. How do you know, especially in the world of children's literature, and I have four children myself, how do you know what's going to be a winner? And how do you know the tone to touch and the how long a book should be and whether it should be tactile? I mean, these are not easy things to know. I mean, I imagine you don't ask three-year-olds what they want. No, um... My qualification for being a children's book publisher is that I was a child and I haven't shut the doors to childhood behind me. Um, Most people do when they go through teenage years. They, oh, I must get rid of things that are childish. I never have been through that. So I have a natural, uh, I don't know, it's kind of radio contact to my childhood. 
Um, and yes, you do ask a lot of questions. And if you, I don't want to go into it in detail, but my first huge uh, success, I was working for another publishing company, was called McDonald Starters. And I'd got a clue from some sales rep at McDonald I was then working for who'd said, you blankety blankety London blanks <laughs> haven't got a clue how simple people up in Scotland really want books to be. And there were you know, two or three hundred people. It was a big meeting. And I went away. I was just getting going in book publishing. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, that chap from Scotland was probably saying something deeply true. So I sat down and invented a series of books which explained very simple things like rain, milk, tiger, um, to like six-year-olds. And they were simpler and shorter than anybody had ever written anything before. And they worked brilliantly and I was suddenly a kind of hero in my publishing company and I was promoted and promoted and eventually got back to start my own book publishing company. So there's a sort of mixture of a Scottish chap giving me a tip and me being, you know, pretty observant and um, a bit of memory. Find out much more from my business shape today, Peter Osborne, the founder and managing director of Osborne Publishing. Time for some music. This is Hafla from Omer Avital. That was Hafler from Omar Vital, and very nice it was too. He's an Israeli jazz bassist, if you're interested in looking him up. Peter Osborne is my business shaper today, and as you were, if you were listening earlier, you would have heard that he is the founder and managing director of Osborne Publishing, and they publish books for children, thousands of them, by the way. Now, going back in time a little bit, Peter, your first venture, your first foray into the world of publishing was at Private Eye. How well, did you land that? Was that? Is that right? It's a very, very strange story, and I'm constantly called a maverick in the bookseller, our trade magazine, because they can't quite work out how I fit. Um, I started my publishing career at Oxford University, where I started a so-called funny magazine. I thought there was a lack of one. My magazine wasn't particularly funny, but I kept going, and it got funnier and funnier. And eventually, we turned it into Private Eye magazine. Uh, it wasn't, I, th- I think it was Willie Rushton's idea. He's sadly gone. But I think he said in some field we were lying in on the last day at Oxford University, why don't we go on doing this? My magazine then was called Mesopotamia Thing. In real life, it was been great fun. And everybody said, shut up, Willie. And I went away and thought and thought and thought. I went to, I think, America for three months and came back and rang everybody up and said, hey, what about doing um, another magazine, funny but national? And they said yes, and I got them all together, and uh, we bought a company off the shelf, and I found an office. And uh, I was briefly a trainee in an advertising agency, and in the lunch hour I organized printers and things like that, and we started Private Eye. And... It was embarrassing. It was an instant success. I think we published it, um, the first what I call real private eye, after three trial editions. We published in February 62 with, I think, a print run of 5,000, which got up to 150,000 in a year because we had fantastic publicity. It was a satire thing. Early 60s, we're talking about the satire was in the air and suddenly Private Eye, a new satirical magazine came along. Journalists loved it and we were just amazingly successful very, very quickly. And then it all started to go wrong and it slumped. And, you know, we sorted it out in the end. 
And I wasn't the editor. I was only the chap who made it all happen and got people together and I suppose paid the salaries. But it was you know, a fairly vivid experience. You just mentioned you weren't the editor, but what, what intrigues me about the publishing world is that yeah. for someone like you, I, I imagine you have to have a really good sensibility around what good writing is, regardless of who the audience is, but also you need to know how to run a business. So are you both creative and commercial? Is that the order? or is it? Yes, yes. Though I, absolutely. And I do in a children's book. I'm basically an editorial chap in in uh, technical terms uh, in, in children's books I wrote and created books now of course I have people who do that for me we have authors and we have staff and designers and things like that but yes I'm a bridge person I can do both the editorial and the business side though at Private Eye I have to say I really did not do the editorial we've had uh, a very good editor called Chris Booker and um, put him in charge and he and Willie Rushton effectively created the editorial content and I was just the pen pusher and filler of bottles and things um, but uh, it was quite exciting Stay with me for much more from my business show today Peter Osborne uh, Time for the latest travel in a couple of minutes and before that some words of wisdom for your burgeoning business from our programme partners at Mishcon Dere My name is Andrew Remington and I'm a corporate partner at Mishcon Dere I spend my life assisting clients doing M&A transactions and raising capital Having done many, many deals, each deal uh, has many similar components, but one thing is always different, and that is the people. Uh, understanding the individual personalities of a deal is critical to the success of any transaction. Good negotiators adopt the 80-20 rule. Generally speaking, the other parties around the table do 80% of the talking, and the good negotiators listen, try to understand what the key issues are that the other parties need or want to have from the transaction, and then trying to be sympathetic to those whilst not losing sight of your own business deal. So be a good listener, um, but don't lose sight of the goal, which is to achieve a deal that works for both sides. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You're listening to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, every Saturday morning from nine o'clock here on Jazz FM. You can hear me talking to someone of note in the world of business. If you miss those people of note, go into iTunes, put in the words Jazz and Shapers and you'll find them all there. Or if you're flying on British Airways, you can always listen to High Life. I'm sure there'll be some really good guests in there as well. My good guest today, very good guest, is Peter Osborne and he is the managing director and founder of Osborne Publishing, which is a bit of an institution now. If you have children, especially if you don't, well... Go and get some children and then you'll need to buy his books. Peter, we were talking before, your first venture, your first entrepreneurial venture was Mesopotamia, which I haven't ever said in my life before, those those words in that order, uh, back at Oxford University. You said that morphed into Private Eye, which in the, in the eyes of many, many people will make you a bit of a legend. Um, you were running a business and we were talking about where commercial and creativity comes together. You moved on from there and you took a paid job, I believe, at McDonald educational publishing is that correct um let's get it right i left private eye after about three years because i was so-called managing director and i had almost nothing to do except slightly worriedly check the small ads for hidden homosexual content it was illegal at the time and i remember sitting there one friday evening checking the bloody small ads and trying to work out whether um, advertisements for rubber gear for motorcycle riders meant something different from what it appeared to mean and i said no wonder i cannot go on doing this all my life i have to think of something else to do and i knew some friend from oxford who said he'd been to a french business school so i signed up to a 
business school in France in Fontainebleau I speak a lot of languages and you know had to speak three to get in so I was rather proud of getting in which ones do you speak I speak um, a a lot German French a bit of Spanish a bit of Italian a bit of Swahili a bit of I'm learning Korean at the moment what did you study at Oxford Uh, classics and philosophy so Latin and Greek as well I've forgotten all that (laughs) it's only about nine languages yeah I love languages I think languages are the most extraordinary invention that the human species has ever devised so so from but what underpinning that and we will we'll go back to where where you went after um fontainebleau yes yeah, so let me let me let me yes, finish please, let please. me finish the story sorry i spent a year at the at the business school then i mucked around briefly i was a management consultant for a year pretty miserable experience and ended up uh, working for a large publishing group as the chairman's assistant and um after a couple of years of doing that uh, my wife rang up one memorable Friday afternoon at about 3.15 and said, I've got some news, you're going to be a father. And I marched into my boss's room, which is just through the door, and said, John, can I stop being your assistant? Can I have something to do with children? And he said, OK, Peter, well, why don't you go down a couple of floors? You'll find we own a publishing company called McDonald, which has an educational publishing department. Get yourself a job. And I did. And I guess everybody said, scatter lads, it's the chairman." you know (laughs) but I got myself a job and a pen and scissors and a table and um, looked around and um, invented this series I mentioned earlier called McDonald's Starters which turned out to be a huge success was intended for schools and I got promoted and promoted and eventually I met my boss in the loo uh, and when we were washing our hands he said how's it going Peter and I said well it's going quite well and um, um, he said well I've heard good things what are you going to do next and then I had a real moment of terror and said, well, uh, mm, I don't really want to be promoted anymore. I really want to start my own company. And he said to me quite incredibly, well, you don't need to go to the city of London. Ask me for the money. And I did. And I made a business plan and it involved borrowing 20,000 quid. And I took it to a friend and said, how's this for a business plan? And he said, well, it's only got one mistake. Add a naught." So I did, and asked for £200,000. I got it, and I started as one publishing extremely well-funded, because in those days, £200,000 worth about a million pounds today, and we sat there, wow. and you know, that's how we got the money. <laughs> what a story, and you're going to find out what happened next if you stay with me here on Jazz Shapers and my wonderful business shaper, Peter Osborne. Time for some more music in the meantime. This is Madeline Peru and The Summer Wind. The tranquil sound of Madeleine Peru and the summer wind. I've been talking to Peter Osborne. He's my business shaper today. He was telling me how a, a chance encounter in the toilet, don't take it the wrong way, ended up £200,000 richer and you set your own business up. Now, you were talking before about your love of languages and it struck me, and it's, I don't think it's a, at all a coincidence, that you are obviously not just someone who loves to learn, but you're an educationalist. And the two don't always go together. Some people can be quite selfish about learning for themselves and other people want to share it. Do you think those two things, in addition to the point you made about being happily childish, have enabled you to create this wonderful empire that you have created? They must. It feels like they underpin the the, the dream of the man 41 years ago borrowing £200,000. I don't feel like a teacher, though it has occurred to me that I might possibly have been a good one. I did have an uncle who was a brilliant teacher. I, I'm not 
courageous enough, frankly, to teach children. And I know that I would get furious and clobber someone and be put in jail. Um, but I do have a knack for communicating with kids. I don't know quite where it, what it really amounts to, but I can do something there. So I communicate with children rather than consciously teach them. I don't have them sitting in rows. Um, but, but, but the fact you, but I think as somewhere, and I meant in a sort of more uh, philosophical way that you like the idea of education rather than necessarily I like, I like, teaching. I, I like, I very much like the idea of simplicity. Mm. Uh, all my life, I'm always looking for the simple way of doing things. Um, the simple book, the simple line of communication, the simple letter, the simple, I love simple. I don't know quite where that comes from, but I have a passion for simplicity and a knack for it. And I can clearly, I don't know, something I can do that a lot of other people can't do, which is get things across very easily and make things, make knowledge less frightening and much more attractive and wantable, edible. I, so I use the word edible about my books. I want my books to be as edible as those bottles of sweets one used to see in old-fashioned post offices I remember so well from my childhood. I want my books to be something you want to put in your mouth. Indeed, when my books sometimes come in from the printer, I still slightly put them in my mouth. <laughs> I think they have to be wonderful objects like sweets used to be wonderful objects. <laughs> I think my children have done the same thing, but they were a bit yeah. younger than you. Yeah. Um, but the, the, was it simple to you then, to use your word, was it simple to you to say, I want to run my own business all the way back when? Because that wouldn't have occurred to a lot of people who were you. Well, I'd done it in a sense at Oxford. I did it at Private Eye. I had an uncle, Henry, who became eventually a Labour MP, who started a business and made a bit of money and had a wonderful property up on the River Avon. And I think I'd always thought that if I'm going to have to be in business, which I didn't particularly want to do, I mean, I really wanted to be a Spitfire pilot one day, but, that, you know, I was a bit old for that. Um, uh, if you're going to be in business, you might as well do it for yourself. Because my uncle once said to me, Peter, you know what? The one thing that's really good fun is working for yourself. I think I must have stuck in my mind. We'll have our final chat with Peter Osborne today. And we will also play a track from Louis Armstrong. That's after the latest traffic and travel here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's perfect. Dig, man. There goes Mac the Knife. <laughs> The iconic Louis Armstrong with the iconic Mac the Knife. And I think even Peter likes that one too. It's a victory. Um, we've been talking about all sorts of things, Peter, and, the, and, and you, I love your, your approach to life, which is you're very clear on what you're, you're, what you're good at. You've wanted to convert what you're good at into, well, you have converted it into the business that you run, and I'm sure that you live your life in that way too, that sense of things having to be edible, as you said, and the, the, the joy of simplicity. You're 41 years into this business now, and you obviously love what you do still. Where's it going to go? What's the legacy going to be for Peter and the family and then the business that you're going to you know, pass on at some point to your, to your family? Well, um, it's, again, strange. I haven't sold out 
um, most people, when they get to be sort of 45 or 50, think, oh, I really want to buy a yacht and sail around the world. I want to make a pile of money. I was fortunate that I managed to find a an American investor who bought 26% of my company when I was about 55. And that, in a sense, made it unnecessary for me to have to sell the whole company. I had to, I got, He gave me some money. I bought a lovely house in France and various toys. Um, so I haven't had to think about selling out. And I think on the whole, that's a very good thing for my staff because most people know what happens when you sell a company, which is the people come in and it's all full of smiles, but then two or three years down the road, the so-called back office gets so-called rationalized. And anyway, um, so my hope now is that I manage to hand over my company to my two children. And we're working quite hard on that. My kids are sort of early 40s, very, very clever young people who I admire and I'm extremely proud of. And if it were possible to hand over successfully the ownership and possibly the running of the company to my kids, I would be a very happy corpse. I'd be looking down with great pleasure. The other thing beyond that, which I think must be the primary and most important thing right now on your agenda, as it were, as the, as the owner and the founder of this business, um, is the future of publishing, or rather the current of publishing, because people talk about it and people talk about the demise, and yet... In most houses across the country, there are parents reading books in their hands to children before they go to bed, all being well. Will that be forever? Do you think? Well, in a printed in a printed form. Six or seven years ago, I think a lot of us in publishing thought we would all disappear. Like in a sense, various forms of uh, recorded music have disappeared. Um, but it hasn't happened. Amazon have clearly become an enormous force and the Kindle is a very good device for reading books on. But people still love owning books and sharing books and having books and showing books and above all, giving books as presents. You can't give a download as a present. Um, the book industry has been shaken, but it has not been destroyed. And I don't think it will be. We're all crossing our fingers a bit on this. But the one area that is actually continuing to grow is children's books. The kind of books I do, which a lot of which are things like lift the flap, touchy-feely, sticker books, you can't do online, and are given very happily as presents. And children love to own books, and parents love to give books. I think Probably more than ever, parents love to give books because parents are worried in a way that they weren't 10 or 15 years ago. I see it in the younger generation very clearly. They're dead worried about their kids getting decent jobs in a way that I never was in my generation. One just got a job. Um, now they're getting incredibly worried about their kids and even two, three, four-year-olds are being given books like There's Almost No Tomorrow because they're so worried about them learning about the world and learning uh, reading and learning uh, mathematical skills and things. So actually the winds, I think, are blowing in favour of children's books and what's more, it's happening all over the world. It's a byproduct of globalisation which means worried mums who are going back to work a bit guilty about that and wonder what they can do about this fact of increasing competition with people all over the world and increasing or rather decreasing maternal time and one of the things they're doing is buying children's books so I'm extremely optimistic about the future of children's books Peter it's been really fantastic to talk to you thank you so much for, for spending some time with me just before I let you go what's your song choice today and why have you well I had it? some trouble because this <laughs> be is honest a, come on this is a radio station dedicated to jazz blues and God knows well none of which are me I'm a, um, a pop and a classical music man you know very middle of the road middle brow kind of chap um, so I thought and thought and came up with Bill Haley Rock Around the Clock and you said nope it doesn't count it's not jazz <laughs> so we struggled around 
And my wife looked on and she said, what about um, these songs? And one of them was A Girl from Ipanema. Now, I remember lying on Copacabana Beach in Rio in the sun, watching those beautiful bodies walking back and forth. And at that time, The Girl from Ipanema was a huge hit. It's a beautiful melody, and I hope you play it. And somebody said, I said to somebody, some Brazilian bloke lying next to me, where is Ipanema? And he said, oh, it's just down there. If you walk three or four miles down the beach, you'll be in Ipanema. And I thought, my God, with any luck, The Girl from Ipanema will walk past. <laughs> and if, she's, if I'm really lucky, you take an interest in balding middle-aged British publishers lying on Copacabana Beach. Well, this is, we are playing. For me, this is, this, pure, is this is travel. This is Brazil. I have a Brazilian operation doing extremely well, known as Inishong, because I was born in Sao Paulo. So for me, this is a beautiful song. It, it's a memory of Copacabana Beach, and it's me traveling and having a huge amount of fun doing what I do. Thank you so much. Here it is. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça Ela menina que vem que passa Num doce balanço caminho do mar Moça do corpo dourado do sol de Ipanema O seu balançado é mais que um poema É a coisa mais linda que eu já vi passar that was The Girl from Ipanema from Astrid Gilberto, the song choice of my business shape today, Peter Usborne. What a colourful man. Fantastically intelligent, a real fan of education and someone who absolutely wanted to keep it simple and wanted his books to continue to be edible. Brilliant stuff. Join me again, same time, same place. That's 9am next Saturday morning for another edition of Jazz Shapers. In the meantime, stay with us. Coming up next, it's Nigel Williams. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.